Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews with your host, Aaron Martell. Hello there, I'm Aaron Martell, and welcome to Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews, a podcast where I talk about and review a rock album of my choice. This episode, we are joined by first-time guest co-pilot and fellow podcaster, Howard Mitnick from the Gateway Music Podcast. Howard, welcome to the R4 Podcast. Oh man, thanks so much for having me. This is pretty exciting. Um, I've been really enjoying your podcast. I've been listening to it for the past couple of months. It's great. Thank you very much. Yeah, so uh, I live in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. I've been doing a podcast for a little more than a year, a weekly podcast. I took the summer off because of COVID and all of that. But when we were restarting in September, the podcast is called Gateway Music Podcast, and it's a music appreciation podcast where I basically talk to people about their musical origin stories. So I'm excited. Fantastic. So on this episode, we're going to review REM's 1986 album, Life's Rich Pageant. Howard, how did you discover R.E.M. in this particular album? Okay, well, R.E.M. I discovered probably through a... There was a... I grew up in Montreal, as I said, and there was a rock and roll radio station in Montreal called Show FM. Every Sunday night, there was a all kind of alternative music, indie music show called New Music Foundation. And I definitely first heard R.E.M. then. It was probably Murmur. I was a really young kid, and... Um, I heard it then. I then started seeing the, the videos from their singles. Uh, can't, specifically, I remember Can't Get There From Here off of Fables of the Reconstruction. And they came to town after that uh, on the Fables tour. They played in a, a show in a pretty small club, probably about 800 people, 700 people. And my friends and I ended up getting tickets. I wasn't a big fan. I knew a few songs. They sounded cool. They were mysterious. They were strange. They were Southern. And uh, I went to see the show. It was a great show. They really blew me away. And uh, after the show, we met the band, which was kind of exciting. They were drinking at the bar. Wow. Um, yeah, I've shared this story on my podcast. So I was, I think, 15 years old at the time. And my friends in Montreal at that time, it was kind of like, fake ID. They didn't, no one really cared as long as you could just show it at the, to get in. And so me and my friends were there and we went up to the band at the bar and my friend asked if he could have, I think Michael's, uh, maybe Peter Buck or Michael Stipe's beer bottle as they were finishing the beer. And Michael Stipe just kind of like stared at us and just said, why would you want his beer bottle? <laughs> and made us feel shamed, even though we were little kids. And that was that. And then I liked REM and then so they're the the I knew that I liked them. And the next album that came out was Life's Worst Pageant. At that time I had just joined a record rental club, which was basically you could rent a record for a dollar or two dollars, depending on what time of week it was. And I rented Life's Rich Pageant and fell deeply in love with the band. All right. How did you first hear the album? Well, REM was on my radar long before I got into the band. I remember seeing the video for the song, it was South Central Rain off the second album, Reckoning. It was on MTV and thinking, yeah, it's all right. But initially to me, R.E.M. was just this alternative college radio band. And at the time, I had no interest in that kind of music. And then over the following years, R.E.M. began inching towards the mainstream. And I'm hearing other songs that I like. Hmm, yeah, Follow Me is pretty good. Yeah, The End of the World is cool. I like the one I love. Stan's kind of fun. 
And even when they really broke through with losing my religion, I was still thinking, yeah, I like what I'm hearing. But by that time, I was so immersed in hard rock and metal, and I just still didn't want to give into it. Yeah. Then I heard Drive and Man on the Moon, and finally I was like, fuck it, I'm going to try them out. So the first REM album I ever got was Automatic for the People in early, I think it was 1993, some 10 years after Murmur came out. And don't you know I fucking love that record pretty much front to back. It's like the switch went off. Bing. I get it now. I get this band. So I went backwards through the catalog, buying one album at a time, starting with Out of Time, until I got all the records. And so I probably got Life's Rich Pageant somewhere in early 94, I'm thinking. I know it was before Monster came out. And I've been a huge R.E.M. fan ever since. So we sort of come at it from a little bit different. We're sort of the same age-ish. Yes. Uh, but we can sort of came at it from different places. I came at it more from indie and alternative music, which is what I liked. And you came at it as they moved through time to become more mainstream, which is kind of cool. That's yes. kind of cool. Oh, I was definitely a mainstream music listener. I still kind of am. The indie music yeah. scene, though I respect it, and a lot of bands I like came up through it. I've always been more of a mainstream listener for sure. Yeah, cool. Now I'll give you some basic facts about this record. And bear in mind I use Wikipedia, so facts is a very loose term. Life's Rich Pageant is the fourth studio album by American alternative rock band R.E.M., released on July 28, 1986 on IRS Records. It was produced by Don Gemmon and was recorded from April to May 1986 at Belmont Mall Studios, Belmont, Indiana. It reached number 21 on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and is certified gold by the RIAA. And here's the band's lineup card. We've got Bill Berry on drums and backing vocals. Peter Buck on guitar and banjo. He's also on accordion. Mike Mills on bass guitar, backing vocals, piano, pump organ, and lead vocals on one track. And Michael Stipe on lead and backing vocals. In addition, all songs are written by Bill Barry, Peter Buck, Mike Mills, and Michael Stipe, with one exception, which I will note when we get to it. Okay, let's dig into a track-by-track analysis of this album. Side one of the record is called Dinner Side, and we lead off with Begin the Begin. Howard, what do you think? I like it. I like it a lot. Um, one thing about REM is that they often have real bangers as their opening tracks on their albums. Uh, right from the first album forward, they, they sort of always want to like make a clarion call right off the bat. And there's no, no difference here. Um, what's cool about this song, I think, is that it, it makes a lot of statements about how this album is different from what came before it. I think in general, you know, first songs and last songs of albums are kind of meaningful in, in their own ways. And this, the sound on this uh, song is much more sort of hard rock, yes. much more, uh, less arpeggiated, bigger, but 
fatter guitar sounds, louder drums. You know, as as a sort of a, a Kiss fan, as a as a rock and roll fan, I think this kind of a song could be appealing. And I think that's part of what they were trying to do on this album. They approached Don Gaiman, Don Gaiman being uh, John Cougar Mellencamp at that time's uh, producer, and recorded in his studio. And this is trying. This is part of the slow process of moving from being an esoteric indie band to becoming sort of more of a mainstream accessible sound and we hear it right off the bat so that's pretty cool but this is rem so they're gonna make all sorts of illusions and of course obviously this is you know right off the bat with begin the begin is a reference to the the sort of cole porter song which is a song from the 30s, uh, 20s, uh, became popular at that time, Artie Shaw's version in the 30s, and it's about music, the song. It's about memory, and it's about how music affects us. So I think it's kind of a cool reference, and it gives us a real sense that uh, Michael Stipe and the boys are going to reward close listeners. They, you know, there's a lot of references in this album and in the albums that come and the albums before that make people listen closer both the music is affecting and the there's there's benefits to listening closely to the music and there's benefits listening closely to the words the other thing that i think is really powerful about this song is the the lyrics that where he basically says you know talking about silence and silence means security and silence means approval so as a fan of rem at the time i listened to this album closely a lot of the things the lyrics that i liked about the album at the time have come to mean less to me as i've gotten older but what has been significant is he sort of i i listen to it now now more as a piece of the development of REM. And Michael Stipe, as a frontman, was a reluctant frontman initially. And this was kind of the first album where he starts sort of being more comfortable, being clear, being more comfortable, having his lyrics be comprehensible. But still, he's struggling with it. And he'll struggle with it for a long while. But this is the beginning of it. And here he's explaining it a little bit. He's saying, silence means security. Silence means approval. He's, you know, I think, like, largely afraid of standing for something and being judged and making meaning. And, but after now, I guess, four or five years of people listening to him and wanting his beer bottle, uh, <laughs> you know, he's starting to feel comfortable. And, 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 and I think that this album, there's a lot of tentative and more aggressive statements about the world around him and his feelings about that. And that's pretty cool. The other thing I just wanted to talk about with this song is The End, which, uh, you know, has some great guitar moves by Peter Buck, where, you know, that that Eastern figure that he starts off with, that's super cool. And then at the end with uh, Let's Begin Again, Begin the Begin at the end when he, he keeps doing these cool he's just, yes. he's just really sort of stretching out in a way, you know, I always say that Peter Buck has like the best right hand in rock and like he's, he's always sort of has this cool arpeggiated guitar playing but here he's starting to play like a more of like a rock god, you know, more of like a, a heavy rock sound which is super cool. So there's lots of other things. There's Americana references in the song. It's like an opening salvo to what's going to be a very satisfying album. 
Yeah, wow. Boy, you said it all. <laughs> There's not much I can add. <laughs> but uh, Peter Buck opens with that little lick that you imitated. It's the connective tissue in the verses, and it's repeated over and over throughout the track. And then his guitar comes in heavily distorted and crunchy, very different from Buck's usual sound. Yeah. Bill Berry's an absolute bedrock on the drums. He's deceptively simple at times, but it's just because he's rarely flashy. He's the definition of someone who plays for the song. And here his drums sound huge, though. His accents are prominent, and each thump on the floor, Tom, that coincides with Buck's connective lick, reverbs like a cannon shot. Mike Mills occupies the same role in this band that John Paul Jones does in Led Zeppelin. He's a utility player who plays multi-instruments and is often the unsung hero of R.E.M. Plus, his backing vocals are an integral part of the band's sound. As a bassist, Mills always finds the pocket and often comes up with melodic bass lines that act as counterpoint to Buck's guitar. In this track, he adds a pump organ flourish to the instrumental breakdown section that sounds cool. I also dig the cowbell doubling the snare in the verses and the tambourine that appears in the choruses. Sonic details that R.E.M. paid more attention to as they went along in their career. And then, of course, we have Michael Stipe, who's got a very distinctive baritone voice, and the way he phrases his melodies makes him stand apart in the alternative music scene. I've always liked his voice, though I sometimes cringe when he gets a little too whiny. In R.E.M.'s early career, he would mumble or mush-mouth his vocals, but right around this time he began to enunciate more clearly, and you can understand the words he's singing. Speaking of words, Stipe is famous for writing very obscure lyrics that occasionally don't even seem to make any sense, especially in the band's early days. I dare you to try to figure out what he's saying and murmur. With this album, though, he began to weave in actual themes to the lyrics. You were talking all about this, Howard. And even though I never fully understand what he means, they sound good together with the music, and I guess ultimately that's what matters. I definitely pick up a political vibe to the lyrics of this song, though. I get a sense that Stipe is criticizing President Ronald Reagan and his policies while also criticizing the American public for going along with them and staying silent. Of the powers, the only vote that matters. Silence means security. Silence means approval. On Zenith, on the TV, tiger run around the tree. Follow the leader. Run and turn into butter. Like you said, the title is a play on the Cole Porter jazz standard, Begin the Begine, and I love this track. It's a surprising, heavy opener to the record. Yeah. Another weird thing about that run and turn to butter is that's a reference to Little Black Sambo. You know, he's just throwing stuff around, seeing what sticks. He's creating some kind of a haze of meaning rather than a strong through line. But everyone who listens to it you know, is affected by it. And the way that you're saying in the end, it's, it's how you feel when you're hearing it rather than specifically parsing out the words. It's powerful. The next track is These Days. Howard, your thoughts? Yeah, so these days, another raver. At the time, this was my favorite REM album. It's the, it's the REM album I fell in love with. Over time, I came to appreciate, I think, different people. You know, REM has stuff for different people. And, and you know, I like the whiny Michael Stipe. I like the incomprehensible Michael Stipe. That, <laughs> that appeals to me, you know? So, uh, but again, right here, we have like, they're making a statement because they're having one 
raging guitar song, and then they follow it up with another one. This one is more of an anthem, more of an inspiring song. Lyrics that are comprehensible, so much so that Mike Mills and maybe Bill Berry, I don't know, is sing it, can sing it exactly with him on backup, which is, we are young despite the years, we are concerned, we are hope despite the times. And that is... Uh, that's a serious statement and one that they would never would have made before. This is, you know, standing up and being counted, which is super cool. Uh, I made reference to the backup vocals. I think backup vocals for REM is there. That's one of their, you know, real sort of secrets to their success is that they harmonize beautifully and they make very unique choices, especially as this album goes on. I think I'm going to point them out again and again, where this one is where like, we are young despite the years, we are concerned, we are hopeless despite the times is directly the same thing. And he's just harmonizing with it. But there are other ones where they play counter melodies and the harmonies. And so that's, I think, an amazing thing to watch. My favorite thing about this song is a very particular thing. And these are games that REM likes to play. When he says, we have many things in common, name three. And what does the backup vocal say, which I think is Mike Mills? Three, three, three. He names three. He's, he names it, and he does it three times, and he's, he does name. He says three. Uh, again, interesting intru- uh, instruments and percussion using rattles. To me, this is a song, when I listen to it now, that I'm less interested in. But as a young man of 15 listening to this song it made me excited and i was you know very interested in it yeah so barry's drums really drive this thing it's faster it's a faster tempo than begin to begin and along with mill's tuneful bass the rhythm's fast and propulsive buck's guitar sounds more like his usual tone it's jangling and ringing but it's still hard and he often favors arpeggiated chords over strum chords that's why that's typically how he plays the influence of producer Don Gemmon is felt on this album. Like you said, he was known as the producer of John Mellencamp's most popular albums, like Uh-Huh and Scarecrow. So there's a little bit more polish on the tracks, especially on the vocals. On this one, Stipe's impassioned voice is right up front. And Mill's backing vocals are clear. We talked about that. His voice is a bit higher pitched than Stipe's, and they harmonize together well. And lyrically, what I'm picking up is that this is a call to young people, that the young do care about the issues that society faces, and they can make a difference if they want to. They just have to stand together and speak up. Again, Stipe's lyrics hardly ever spell out exactly what he means, so that's just my interpretation of it. Two songs in, and the record's off to a fast, rocking start. Yeah, you said they have to stand together. I think it's interesting because I think this is in some ways, at least lyrically, a progenitor of the song Stand, where it's like, I don't know exactly what we have to stand against and stand for, but stand, you know, like, yeah, it's just it, and that's that's what I think is super cool about this song is it, it you can fill it up with whatever you want. It's just about standing up and be and be counted. You know? Yes, super except cool. Stand is more of a poppy. It's almost lighthearted where this is yeah. like. This is more uh, assertive. This is oh, yeah. more forceful. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to get back to Stan later in this because there's another thing, another song later on I want to talk about in the context of Stan. Very good. Cool. Yeah. The following track is Fall On Me. Tell the sky, Lord, what is the 
Howard, what do you think? This is the song that I think most people think of when they think of this album. Yeah. I think this is the song that people fall in love with. This is a song that kind of, you know, whether you're sort of a super bro, whether you're kind of a sensitive guy, whether you're sort of, a, you know, a music fan, whether you're a casual listener, old people, young people, men, women, everyone loves this song. And this song has aged super well. Yeah, it has. You know, and there aren't so many songs from the mid 80s that kind of were popular that don't sound of that time. And and this is this pr- the production here was it was really tasteful. Like you talk about, you know, the arpeggio ar- arpeggiated chords uh Peter Buck, this is for sure there. When we talk about backup vocals and beautiful backup vocals, we got them here. What I think is super cool about this song is that I knew at the time that it was about acid rain. And um, everyone knew that it was about acid rain. But it's not, like, when you when you actually listen to the song, there's nothing really that's telling you about acid rain. I mean, there's it's invoking things that make sense in the context of acid rain. But it's a bit of a simplification, you know? Like, and that happens a bunch to REM because what you said earlier where, like, you know, you said, like, it's it never really lands exactly on the thing. It's kind of vaguely about it and the same we're going to get to that with a number of songs that i'm going to sort of draw attention to i think as they go along the song works because it 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 embodies an emotion you know it it makes you feel a certain way and then you can pivot that to whatever focus you're putting it onto you know this is not a slogan song these days is a slogan song this is a song about kind of feeling and fall on me there's me is in it it's personal this if if this is a song about acid rain it's not nearly as good as if it's about acid rain and it's about that feeling of falling and that feeling of clouds above you and consequences and impact dropping things and having them fall and i i know that might be sound sort of like really sort of I don't know, thinky about it. But I think that this is a band that is a thinky band, you know? Oh, for sure. And and this song moves me still to this day. Listening to this album in preparation for this, I, I was sort of struck by how some of these songs don't land so well for me anymore, but Fall On Me never misses. Buck plays both electric and acoustic guitar, letting his arpeggios ring out, while Barry kind of lays back on the beat with a lighter touch, and Mills plays a simple bass line, not gumming up the works with something busier. The star of the show on this one, though, is unquestionably Stipe, who delivers a tender vocal that gains an urgency in the verses and a wonderfully soaring vocal in the chorus. But the backing vocals by both Mills and Barry, as you were alluding to again, they're also cool as shit. They offer musical counterpoint in the verses and choruses without overshadowing Stipe. Apparently, the backing vocals feature the song's original melody that R.E.M. used when they performed the song live in 1985 prior to recording this version. But by the time the band recorded this in 86, Stipe had come up with a new melody. By keeping both versions, it's an outstanding vocal arrangement, and the bridge is entirely sung by Mills. Lyrically, I see it as a concern about the environment and the dangers of acid rain, and it was originally about that. But Stipe later said it's about general oppression inspired by the story of Galileo dropping feathers and lead weights off the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And I like how you said, Howard, he makes it personal, which makes it more, you feel it more. It's more emotional. It's not like a scientific chart that he's reciting. It means something to him. 
and it comes through in his vocals. This is a gorgeous track that's a standout among a long line of great R.E.M. ballads and would prove to be quite influential in the alternative rock scene. It was the first single from the album that reached number 94 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart. Yeah, he was he, he was learning. He was learning that making people feel was effective, you know, like like when you think about the the great R.E.M. songs leading up to this, you know, you mentioned South Central Rain, for example, which is a good example of it. It's completely esoteric. And it's amazing because of that. But this song is not alienating. This song is opens itself up. You know, it's not it's not scaring people who want to just enjoy a song. It's saying, here, enjoy this song. You'll, you can have it, too, which is beautiful. And the imagery is more concrete. And the way Stipe is delivering the vocals now, he's not just letting the music wash over his mumbling. He's out front now and he's saying what he's thinking, what he's feeling. And it comes across. The next track is Cuyahoga. This is where we this is where we swam. Take a picture here. Take a souvenir. Howard, what do you think? Oh my God. Okay, first of all, I love the song. This, you know, the one thing that's amazing about this album is that like we're on track four and each track is 100% a success. Like again, these days, I don't love it as much as I used to, but they all are super effective at being inspiring. Um, this song, again, I knew at the time was about the Cuyahoga River, which I was, I only learned about, I mean, again, I'm Canadian. I didn't know anything about Cuyahoga, but I, I learned from the song, oh, they managed to make a river burn and for multiple times in the history of Cleveland, or because I think the river goes through Cleveland, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that the, the river burned. And isn't that incredible? But what, what what I didn't understand as a young guy and that I understand now listening to the song is that it's not just about in the same way that fall on me is not just about acid rain, although it is. And this song is not just about pollution and modern pollution. This is a song about the destruction of the country and he mirrors it with it being a song about colonization and the destruction of America and American people who were here before the white people we got here. And that is super cool that it works in both ways because it becomes something much bigger. It becomes about America, you know? And, and that's one of the things that's so beautiful about R.E.M. is that they really do, they're such an American band and they make so many American references so for example let me just get the lyrics out here right off the bat he says let's put our heads together start a new country up our father's father's father tried erased the parts he didn't like this is about us coming and erasing and changing what was america and then he goes this land is the land of ours the river runs right over and he says we knee skinned it we made we made the river red but then that's like a, a small little thing and then he changes it to from 
this is where we walked and swam to. This is where they walked and swam and hunted and danced and sang. Take a picture here. Take a souvenir. This is where we turned this incredible, natural, um, sort of like wonderland into souvenir land. We cheapened it. And, and so it's, it's not just about pollution. It's about what we do, how colonization works and how it breaks things down. Super cool lyrics. The song itself, it has a great bass intro. You mentioned Mike Mills being the secret weapon. Like, uh, I am a huge Mike Mills fan. Me too. I love when he sings. I, his bass playing is so inspired right from the first album. You know, what's so cool about bands is when they have that magic alchemy. And this band, you mentioned John Paul Jones. People play their instruments not as they're supposed to be played, but as they need to be played to be playing with the other people. So when you have Peter Buck playing these arpeggiated guitar pieces, you need a bass player who's going to fill in a lot of space. Yes. And, and he does it. And that allows, again, drummer to, to and we're going to talk, you know, talk about, you've been talking about how great Bill Barry is and the choices he makes. This is, this is a band that fills in each other's gaps. I think this is a great song to hear that on. I loved it at the time. Re-listening to it now, I still love it. Great song. Yeah, this was written primarily by Mills and Barry, and it starts with that Mills bass figure that leads to a mid-tempo number with the bass leading the way and Buck's guitar jangle adding color as opposed to sonically dominating the music as rock guitars often do. You were talking about that, Howard. The lyrics, again, stress being environmentally conscious, referencing the pollution of the Cuyahoga River in Ohio, where it was so bad that the river actually caught on fire several times. Peter Buck said it's also a metaphor for America and its lost promises. Exactly what you were saying, Howard. A comment on how poorly the Native Americans were treated early in American history. But there's also an undercurrent of optimism as the lyrics hold out a tentative hope for change, which is let's put our heads together and start a new country up comes from. Stipe's vocals and melodies are sensitive and they hit the mark, and the chorus soars again, particularly with Mills' high-backing vocals and the higher notes he plays on the bass. This excellent track was a particular favorite of Mills who loved playing it live. The following track is Hyena. your thoughts so if the last song was an opportunity for me to think a little bit about mike mills i think hyena is an opportunity to really think about bill berry mm-hmm. um on the chorus what he is doing on the cymbals both on the hi-hat at one point and on the ride he's doing all of these like Stuart copeland yes he's he's, he's all of this sort of light touching and changing and it uh, he adds so much he's That's so you know, good it's not surprising uh, not to look. I like to simplify things. I like to psychologize things. I like to simplify things, but I don't think that it's so surprising that when Bill Berry left the band, a lot of what was so magical about REM sort of drifted away a little bit. Absolutely you know, true. they lost me. They yeah, I think they, <laughs> yeah, they lost. They lost a lot of us, and and it's not it's not a judgment on them. It's just the fact that 
I think if you lost any of these four guys, the band would not have worked, you know? And that's Very and that, true. that's the genius of Led Zeppelin. Yes. That's that's why Robert Plant was a genius, because he was like, Oh, we can't continue. John Bon like without John Bonham, we can't continue. There's no there's no it doesn't work. And that is sort of interesting about the Who, where they were like, No, we will continue, and with a great drummer, Kenny Jones. But the but again, the alchemy, the chemistry does not work. Yep, it's disrupted. And and so great drummer, great creative force, beautiful. Um, I also like in this song is the return of that sort of tack piano sound mm-hmm. that I love so much in South Central Rain, as in and don't go back to Rockville, especially. You yep. know, it's nice to have that friend back. Seven with us. Chinese brothers. Yes, for sure. What's great about this with Michael Stipe is he, again, drawing attention to close reading. He makes small changes that are, is makes it rewarding, first of all, just to hear the small changes, but it also draws attention to how he makes meaning. You know, one of the things that I really like in the song that most people know, which is the one I love, is how he goes from uh, a simple prop, Occupy My Time, to a another prop that's occupied my time. It's like, oh, this is a pattern. And here too, he does the same thing. He goes the nighttime fell at the opening, at the beginning of the song, and the final act at the beginning of the time. And then at the end, it's nighttime fell like the closing. And so he's creating structure and meaning and inviting us in, which is just great. Um, again, here's another example of, of Mike Mills' great backup vocals. I have no clue what he's saying in the back here, but it, I cannot make out a word, which is great REM, but it's, it, it works so well. It drives the song along. The one thing, obviously the obvious quote, again, as a 15 year old man, I, even I knew enough to hear it. It was like, the only thing to fear is fearlessness. The bigger the weapon, the greater the fear, which is his play on FDR's quotation, which at the time, you know, which is the only thing we have to fear is fear itself nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance, which is basically saying, don't panic, that causes problems. But here he's going the opposite way. And he's saying like, well, the, the thing we have to fear here is not being afraid. The thing we have to fear here is cockiness, bigger weapons, which is, you know, a, um, this is the first album where he's, the REM starts their sort of clear political stance of being against Ronald Reagan, against the Republican Party, against Star Wars program, against just building up the Cold War. This is one of those songs that sort of starts making it clear. I mean, we get even deeper in future future albums, exhuming McCarthy, obviously. But like, this is kind of making us know that R.E.M. is standing and being counted. Yeah, so we first hear these noises that I assume are supposed to imitate a laughing hyena. At least that's how I always heard it. And then it transitions to another fast-paced track with Barry's syncopated drums, like you said, extreme standout, and Mill's piano notes serving as an intro. And then the main body of the tune is more of a typical REM sound with Buck's jangly guitars and the rhythm section racing alongside them. The drum and piano intro also doubles as the music in the bridge, and that works well. While there are more counterpoint backing vocals to Stipe singing the word hyena in the chorus. And I don't know what he's saying either. I don't know what Mills is saying. <laughs> I interpreted these lyrics as kind of a threat of nuclear war and mutually assured destruction that the hyena is kind of working to prevent. Like I thought the hyena might be a metaphor for a diplomat or someone of political influence. The nuclear arms race was a pretty frightening reality in 1986. But, you know, what you're saying also rings true, Howard. These lyrics are so open to interpretation. Yeah. 
this track keeps its foot on the gas the entire way, and I dig it. Yeah. Um, I don't think also, uh, um, I think that it's super interesting when you do think about it in the terms of, the you know, this was the mid-80s. The, this was the time of the, what was that show, The Day After? The you day know, after. this is this yeah. is what this is this was coming out in that con- so just to explain to people who you know who weren't a teenager or a kid in, in the eighties, there was this like crazy show where they Im- imagined what it would be like the day after a nuclear attack, and we all were living with that panic. And what's super interesting is that then they lead into the next song, which is underneath the bunker, which takes us even more there and and situates us physically instead of having this vague kind of like philosophical song this is about being present in a bunker and and that's super cool too and that next track is underneath the bunker How about this one, Howard? So underneath the bunker, we've been talking about nuclear war and nuclear anxiety. And here we are now. Now we're situated there. We're sitting underneath the bunker. And this is cool. There there were a number of nuclear bunker songs at the time. There was one that I really loved, which was New Frontier by Donald Fagan from Steely Dan. Uh, There were a lot of songs at the time. This one was cool because it sounded so other- in terms of like, it came from another time. It came from another place. It the it was sort of like a rumba. I don't even know what it is, but it's some kind of different kind of a rhythm. And and then Michael Stipe does this great art school trick that I saw him do later on. Uh, I will turn you inside out. He used to use it, which is a megaphone, and that megaphone singing sound where I will cry and you will cry, and it, and it just you know it right away is uh, cool. It this song is definitely a toss off. You know, it didn't even get it listed on the t- tracks on the album. Um, it's it reminds me a bit of End Game from Out of Time, where it's like a small little thing. Um, it's flavor, but I do like the fact that it's a counterpoint to Hyena, that it takes us to a very physical place and space and ends the side. So that, that's kind of cool. It is, I think, probably one of the two songs that is the least necessary on the album, but I always enjoy it. I like weird stuff. So we take a little sonic detour here with a Spanish-style guitar lick, an accordion sound in the background, and the rhythm section playing a Latin-influenced rhythm, complete with added Latin percussion. There are goofy, wordless vocals, and then Stipe's voice has got that megaphone effect on it as he sings about hiding underneath the bunker with his rum, his water, and you. I don't know. Maybe we're hiding from the nukes in the last track. I think you said that as much, Howard. This is short, under a minute and a half. It's really just an experimental interlude. It wasn't even credited on the original packaging, and no wonder it doesn't need to be here. I'm with you, Howard. I could live without it. This is Aaron's Stinky Stinker. So let's flip the imaginary record over to what's called the supper side and drop the imaginary needle on the flowers of Guatemala. Oh, my name. 
you think? This to me is in a lot of ways a song, a version of a song that they were, he was going to, Michael Stipe was going to practice again and again, that R.E.M. were going to practice again and again and fine tune, which is like ballads, like Everybody Hurts, Strange Currencies, where they were, they're slow songs, they're spare songs. And like Fall On Me, Flowers of Guatemala is, works or doesn't work both as a political song and as a non-political song. Again, at the time, I knew that this was about something political. And, you know, now I understand genocide. Uh, but when you actually look at the song, it's not there. I mean, it, it's it's there because I knew it and because he's hinting with Guatemala and because people were talking about it. But this song is a pretty evocation. And like the, he makes reference to Amanita, which is I've look, looked up and is a poisonous mushroom. But Amanita doesn't flower. You know, so the flowers that are everywhere, what are they? Is, is he stoned on mushrooms? I don't know what's going on, but it's beautiful. The other thing that is great about this, because it's so rare for R.E.M. songs, is there's a guitar solo, an honest-to-God guitar solo. Yes. Um, now, it's not a sort of a rager. It's kind of a, a sort of a, a nice, delicate guitar solo, but it's there. Uh, and it's not surprising to me that on the next album, the guitar solo was going to be on The One I Love, which is also a delicate song with a delicate solo. So that was sort of where they, you know, as a band that was kind of anti-guitar solos, I think they felt somehow that on these pretty songs that you could do it. If you weren't, if you weren't doing it, you know, all macho, you could have a guitar solo. Yeah. The other thing that's unique about this is, as I said, on about the first side is that they usually opened up the sides of their albums with, with rockers. And this is not. They they have a rocker that they're about to come up with on the next song, but they chose to put this at the start, which I think is nice also because they're trying to they maybe they're focusing a little bit more on this side of their sound, which is cool. Boy Howard, all I'm doing this episode is repeating what you're saying, and I apologize for that. <laughs> <laughs> so this pretty sounding track has a moody vibe though. In the verses, the clean electric guitar arpeggios are teamed with staccato organ notes. And Barry's syncopated drums are boosted by additional percussion. That sounds like a, it sounds like a vibraphone or something similar to that. Mm-hmm. In the chorus, the tempo raises slightly while strummed acoustic guitars match the straight beat. In the bridge section, the piano and organ make their presence more known. And Buck actually plays a guitar solo that won't set the world afire, but it feeds into the somber vibe of the music. Stipe's voice is kind of subdued, and the backing vocals sing a wordless counter melody in the verses and add an echoed lyric line in the choruses. They're doing this a lot on this record. Now, the lyrics are open to interpretation again. To me, they reference the Amanita mushroom. They, they, he actually comes out and says that. It's a poisonous hallucinogenic that indigenous people in Central and South America refer to as flowers. But it also may vaguely refer to the Guatemalan coup in 1954, which was backed by the United States and placed a fascist dictatorship in power, critical of past American politics. It's very possible. In any case, it's pretty subtle for the most part. He doesn't come out and say that uh, explicitly. This track isn't really a favorite of mine, but I still like it. It is very pretty. The following track is I Believe. What you want and what you need There's a key Your adventure for today What do you do between Horns of the day I 
Howard, do you believe? I believe. I believe in that banjo riff at the start of the song. That's a pretty good <laughs> banjo riff. Again, as the band moved forward, and you you, heard, I, you know you hear them start later starting to incorporate mandolin. Peter Buck is is searching. I mentioned the fact that uh, the first episode of your podcast that I listened to was the Big Country, The Crossing uh, album, and it's a hard thing when your style becomes such a big part of how people appreciate your music. Like, yes. you know, Peter Buck was kind of painted into a corner, but it's hard to keep doing that same thing. So you see him reaching out to other instruments where he can sort of explore a similar way of playing or like finding the truth in how he plays guitar in the instruments that do that better. You know, so he goes to banjo here, he goes to mandolin later on. And that's cool. Accordion. Accordion. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So this is a guitar tune for sure, though, despite the fact that it starts off with a banjo. This is a guitar tune. It's up-tempo. The lyrics are clearly enunciated. The meaning is, once again, totally esoteric. He, this is a personal song. When I was young, you know, like, whoa, Michael Stipe's in the room. He's, he's, he was young. <laughs> he, we're going to actually hear about Michael. But, like, again, this is a guy who I think was pretty far away still from sort of being a public figure from, you know, what it was going to be another almost decade before he came out as a queer person. Uh, this is, this is, he's not quite there yet. So these lyrics are, are going to be personal, but they will be difficult to understand. And disguised. Yeah. yeah. This is, he, he does give us some great ones that as young, as a young man, I ate up big time. Like perfect is a fault and fault lines change. That sounds, sounds great. I have no idea what it means, but it sounds good. It makes me excited. Yes. Like you said, squeeze box is here too. I don't know which kind of squeeze box, but it's here as well. Once again, backup vocals. Like every single song, I feel it's the same thing. You have to say, it's like, how, how good is this band with backup vocals? There's, this is another one where they're great. I like at the end of the song, my, he gives some great ones that, that really, again, bring Michael Stipe into the song. I believe my throat hurts. When the singer is singing and saying, I believe my throat hurts, as, <laughs> as someone who has sang in bands before, that's, a, that's, a, that's an A-plus lyric. And, and again, another one that's sort of so evocative. The holds are slipping. Like, wow, that, that makes you feel like the song is, is, is falling apart. It's so intense, you know, and it is an intense one. I give this one an A-plus. This was probably one of my favorite ones at the time, and I, I loved listening to it again this week. Peter Buck on the banjo, playing a short, competent intro like he's hanging out in Appalachia. Then the band launches into an up-tempo tune that sounds like old-school R.E.M., and I read that it was originally written for their prior album, Fables of the Reconstruction, but was pulled at the last minute and reworked for this album. There's that jangle in the guitar, steady drumming and melodic bass. Plus, it sounds like the accordion makes a return as a background feature until the solo section where it takes center stage. Stipe's vocals have some pep to them, and the lyrics baffle me a little bit, but the main idea I'm getting is that the narrator believes it's a positive thing to accept changes that come in your life, summed up in these lines, in my opinion. Trust in your calling. Make sure your calling's true. Think of others. The others think of you. Silly rule. Golden words make. Practice, practice. Perfect is a fault, and fault lines change, and change is what I believe in. As long as it elicits a response from you, an emotional type of response, it doesn't matter what the actual words are. At least that's how I feel about lyrics. This isn't a favorite of mine, but it's a good solid track. 
The next track is What If We Give It Away. hit me yeah what if we let go right that's that, what if we give it away what, what if we don't take on this mantle but it also means what if we don't charge for it what if we what if we just give it away what if, and 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 this that's what's cool about this song is that it sort of works both ways it, it, what's the recurrent image of the song there's this tie and there's order you know you stitch it on your tie you sew it on your tie yeah and I for order, and then later there's a, this command for order. And I think that it's working in both ways. There's this idea of playing with sort of materialism. Money couldn't buy, you know, like there's this thing outside the walls that may exist or not exist, and money can't buy it, and that we're living inside these walls. Well, what if we drop the walls, and then we don't have to live within this thing? But it's also, it, it's doing double work. I don't know if I'm explaining myself correctly, but it's order is means opposite of chaos. And it also means like a command, like I'm giving you an order. Yes. And and I think that there's, this is a great example where the band is playing a sort of um, an interesting evocative song. And Michael Stipe, who I think wrote these lyrics is seeding meaning and letting us different you know it's like one of those like when you connect the dots but if you you can connect them if you don't follow the numbers you can make all sorts of pictures with the connect the dots and that's to me this is a perfect example of a classic rm song that way Mm. this has palm muted guitar in the verses with acoustic guitar flourishes at the end of each second line in the verse the drums are played with a little bit of restraint, and the bass does nothing fancy. It maintains the low-key mood until the chorus, which raises the tension in the music and vocals with shaking tambourine and strummed acoustic chords, finally broken by silence and Stipe singing, What If We Give It Away? These lyrics were really obscure for me. I'm, you kind of, uh, I, I kind of like what you're saying about them, Howard. I consulted the internet, which is, you know, a, a dubious thing in itself. The best I could find is that it may be about moving on with life, figuratively and literally, leaving your worries and pressures behind. Sure, I'll go with that. I don't know. It's as good as any guess I can come up with. Yours is probably better than mine, Howard. I really dig this track. I like the change of pace, atmosphere, and mood it sets and creates. The following track is Just a Touch. What do you think about this one, Howard? This is the one that I skip when I'm listening to the album. Okay, this album I think is a good rock album for R.E.M. because there's a lot of rockers. This is one of the rockers, and it's the rocker that I think 
brings the least to the table. This is like sort of a, like what's the frequency Kenneth a bit to me where like he's making putting names. There's names here. I, this doesn't add up to much to me. It doesn't make me think about anything. It doesn't make me feel very much. And it's just kind of a hooter, you know, this is my stinky stinker. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Guitar feedback leads to another fast rocker. This one really comes on noisy and it has almost a punk type energy to it. Mills piano bangs alongside Buck's hard edge riffs and even Stipe's getting into it. He's more shouting than singing the words and he yelps out these I just find pretty amusing coming from this typically shy, moody dude. But he's so goddamn young, I can buy it. The organ also lurks underneath the racket and burbles up for a very short melodic solo. I read that the lyrics are inspired by the death of Elvis Presley and the public's reaction to it. Supposedly, Stipe was an Elvis fan as a kid. I don't know. There's a familiarity to this tune, though, which really becomes apparent when the bridge melody directly apes R.E.M.'s first hit, Radio Free Europe. I like this. It's not often R.E.M. gets this raucous and rowdy. So, yeah, I'll, I'll take it. Cool. You know, you mentioned the the end of it, which is my favorite part of the song where he's in like, I, I'm so goddamn young. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you are you have you listened to a lot of uh, Patti Smith? Only horses. Right. I, so, I, haven't, I haven't dug any deeper. So on Gloria, which was is was the big song from there, um, on the single, the B-side was a cover of My Generation, um, okay. which is now... The Who's like, My Generation. Yeah, yeah, The Who's yeah, My yeah. Generation. Okay. It's like, you know, her sort of Patti Smith version of it. And at the end of the song, she's she's doing that. I'm so goddamn young. So he's directly referencing that, which is yes. something actually I should have mentioned, which is like, this is again, another example of like why REM was cool. I didn't know that at the time. I had never heard that, that at the time, but what was cool about REM was that they were knowledgeable. Like it was hard in the eighties. It's hard for people to understand now, young people, even not that young people, that it was hard to access things. So if you knew that reference, Man, was that a bomb. That was the greatest thing in the universe. Yes. So he was dropping that for the crate diggers and for the deep, you know, alternative music fans out there. So that's pretty cool, especially in the middle of this rager, which has nothing. Well, I mean, Patti Smith liked to rage and she, but, but, you know, like this is like a, a rock and roll tune. So it's super cool. I don't know what it would, I would have to do with Elvis Presley, but it does give you a bit of a sense of like, they were coming from it being a very cool, very in the know, very alternative music. You know, the covers that they did, they would do Velvet Underground covers. Oh they, yeah. They, they were guiding me anyway, personally to a lot of cool music. Yeah. And now that you inform me of this, now I realize that this is R.E.M.'s punk song. Yeah, I guess so. I didn't really think about it like that. I guess you're right. The penultimate track is Swan Swan H. Swan Swan Hummingbird Hurrah We're all free now Long, low time ago People talk to me Johnny Reb, what's the price of fans? Forty apiece or three for one dollar. Hey, Captain, don't you wanna buy some bone chains and toothpicks? What do you think of this one, Howard? First of all, I like pretentious titles. Okay, (laughs) 
they did it before. They did it with So Central Rain, where they they make you they make the listener struggle with what's the title of this song? Because it's Swan Swan Hummingbird. Why is, it, why is it called Swan Swan H? You know, South Central Rain is that? Do I say South Central Rain? Do I say So Central Rain? You know, so they're making you negotiate with the song right off the bat, which is a powerful move. You know, I talked about uh, underneath the bunker putting us in a specific physical place. This puts us in a specific time, right? This takes us back. The, the, he gives us hints. They give us hints. Johnny Reb. You know, I, I, I we know. Uh, you know, we know about Johnny Reb. He that he was the sort of like Confederate generic Confederate soldier, mm-hmm. and the references really make us feel like we're in nineteenth century America here. How he's playing guitar. And how he's singing these songs, just naming out specific things, a pistol, whiskey and water, wine, marching feet. What's the price of heroes? What what does it mean to be a hero in a war? The big picture, once again, we've said this for so many of these songs, don't know what it's about, but it puts us in a in a time. It puts us in a place. It puts us in a mood. And very, uh, very effectively so. Swan, swan, hummingbird. I mean, I do not know what that means, but man, if he invented that, that is just incredibly evocative. This huge, big, beautiful bird, and the smallest bird, who's what the swan moving gracefully and the, the hummingbird constantly moving. You know, who knows what the hell that is? I do not know. I love this song. It is a song that got only, for me only better with time as we got to hear more and more of REM sort of exploring slower songs and moodier songs even as they went and became more popular they did a cool trick they made songs like this later on in their career that would become popular they didn't just go to the mainstream they brought people from the mainstream into more alternative music yes one of the very few groups you can say that about yeah it is it is very hard to cross over without getting double crossed they managed to do it and like where like i don't think you two who were the sort of the other band that kind of were were kind of making that version of a crossover did it i think you two became a mainstream band but yes. i think rem became successful as an alternative band Yes. And it was these kinds of songs later on as Losing My Religion, for example, which I think it has a lot of similarities to, uh, just in the sound of it, suddenly that could be popular. And that's a cool trick. So this sounds like an old folk tune. The guitars are acoustic and are strummed in the right channel. And on the left, we hear a constantly picked melody. Then Barry comes in with a Marshall drums and that old accordion returns and plays into the pathos this song evokes. It's reminiscent of an older time, and that makes sense since to me the lyrics take the viewpoint of Southern white society post-Civil War and how they had difficulty adjusting to the new reality of a war-torn South. Their Confederate currency no longer has any value, and the narrator questions the worth of the conflict in terms of the loss of human life and subsequent economic ruin. Stipe's voice is deliberately flat as he sings, Swan, Swan, Hummingbird, Hurrah, we're all free now. As the narrator is not celebrating the freedom of the slaves, he's kind of being facetious. 
R.E.M. hailed from Georgia, though only Stipe was born in the South, and even he was a military brat whose family frequently moved. So this song, to me, is more of an appropriation than a deeply felt conviction. It's a point of view, a story. And as with every story, there are two sides. I dig this track. I love how it sounds, and it's solemn and thought-provoking. And that brings us to the final track, Superman, written by Mitchell Botler and Gary Zeckley. Superman, and I know what's happening. I am, I am, I am Superman, and I can't do anything. You don't really love that guy you make it with now, do you? I know you don't love that guy. How about this last one, Howard? I think this is super cool. So at the time, I knew that it was a cover. Someone had told me. I don't know. Or maybe I read it in Rolling Stone. I, I don't know. But again, this is, a, this is a song that is very interesting to think of in the context of what came next. They had not made a song like this yet. So they had done a lot of covers. But I don't even know if any of them had been on albums, they, but they've done many of them at B-sides and stuff. Again, this is a song like what I talked about with Patti Smith and So, so Goddamn Young that rewarded people who knew about kind of nuggets, you know, classic 60s American rock and roll nuggets. And if you knew it, you felt special and it felt good. Number two, this was just a pure pop song, which they had never really done before. Right. And it was it was practicing for them to do some of their own that were to come. You know, like this is a cover. They were taking someone else's pure pop song. So it's cool. Like it was a bit of a a way for them to put out a pop song without having to say, hey REM, you just wrote a pop song. No man, we're doing a cover. It's a cool cover. But what was gonna come? Shiny happy people stand you know, yes. this was this was the blueprint for it. And yes. the other way that I thought it was cool that they were getting away with it was that it wasn't Michael Stipe singing. It was it was Mike Mills. So like this isn't a real R.E.M. song. It's Mike Mills singing a cover, you know, so it's pay okay. no attention it's to that song. song. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. and, it's, and it's an obscure song. So if you know that it's yes. a cover, you're not going to come after us. So it was a cool first sort of um, half step towards. REM as pop stars, yes. you know, and it's a good one. I got, I'm tired of it now. I loved it at the time. I'm a bit tired of it now, but it's a beautiful, shiny, happy pop song. And, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, it's funny that the, the end of the album of this sort of more political album is like, oh no, man, everything's cool. We're just doing pop songs. Don't, don't, nothing will happening here. You know, it's, it's a funny way to end the album. It is. So the band chooses to end the album with an unlisted cover tune originally done in 1969 by the Texas band The Click. And R.E.M. plays it straight up. They don't mess with the arrangement. It sounds pretty much like the original. The bizarre intro is taken from a pull-string Japanese Godzilla doll, which says in Japanese a report about Godzilla threatening Tokyo. And then it goes right into the song. I don't understand what that intro is all about, but hey, it's fun. Musically, it's straightforward with R.E.M.'s usual instrumentation, and Mills adds some pump organ to give the music a lighter vibe. The big difference on this is that Mike Mills takes the lead vocal reputedly because Stipe wasn't thrilled with the song and didn't want to do it. 
though he does get a backing line that's easily discernible later on. Interestingly, even though the music is upbeat, the lyrics are fairly dark. As the narrator is stalking a former lover and believes she belongs with him, he watches her and says that even if she goes a million miles, he'll track her down. Creepy little fuck. My guess is that this track is placed here because sonically, at least, it closes the album on an upbeat tone, and it's okay, it's harmless, it's a well-executed pop cover tune. Now that the track-by-track is finished, we'll give our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a 0-5 to system, with 5 being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a 0, which the sky fell in on. Howard, what are your final thoughts on life's rich pageant? Um, uh, so I am not good with ratings. I have to tell you, I, I, I they, 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 ratings intimidate me. <laughs> so so I'll, I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it a four out of five. I like this album. I listen to this album still. There are some number of these songs that I listen to pretty frequently. When I love a band, I love the narrative of the band and I love the story of the band and the REM has one of the one of the most interesting stories you know of sort of really transitioning from one kind of a band to being another kind of a band from transitioning from being you know like a sort of almost one of the bands that created college rock created indie rock created alternative rock they I mean they created it even to the point where they they created the tour lanes. They they were the band, one of the bands that went around and was like, oh, REM played there. We're going to play there. Like, they really created it to being sort of a mainstream success band. But as I said, they always maintained their REMness. They always maintained their otherness. And I think this album is a real nice sort of... Um, sort of transition moment. They had a few transition moments, but this is kind of, I think, the first one. The album before was sort of, production was kind of muddy. And I like, I, I love Fables of Reconstruction, but it was, uh, you know, didn't sound clear. And they went and they said, we want to sound clear. We want to, we want people to hear our message. We want, we want people to love us. We want people to be connected to us. And it's uh, it's a difference, and so it will always be one of my favorite REM albums because it was it's such a big part of that narrative for me. Not my favorite REM album, but one of the best. REM had already become a college rock and indie rock darling by the time the band was ready to record its fourth album, but they were also inching their way slowly towards the mainstream the whole way as they went. They had established an REM sound that was distinctive and would prove to be extremely influential to the burgeoning alternative rock scene, but they were not satisfied with resting on its laurels. The recording and touring cycle for their third album, Fables of the Reconstruction, proved to be a trying time for the band members and even saw them contemplating breaking up at tour's end. Deciding instead to refocus and renew their commitment to one another, R.E.M. entered the studio with a new producer, Don Gemmon, known for his work with John Mellencamp, and began to tinker with its sound that was only the beginning of what would blossom into full musical experimentation on future releases. The music brought more energy, added more diverse musical influences, and plain out rocked harder than anything R.E.M. had done before. But the biggest change came in the lyrics and vocals of Michael Stipe, who brought more of a sense of clarity and purpose to the lyrics, a bit less abstract, and delivered the words with a more assertive, powerful voice, which Gemmon's production emphasized. The album was titled after a line said by actor Peter Sellers in the 1964 film A Shot in the Dark, Inspector Clouseau, 
And the album cover was half of a picture of drummer Bill Berry's face above a photo of two bison. When it was released, Life's Rich Pageant was R.E.M.'s best-selling and highest-charting album at the time, going gold and reaching number 21 on the U.S. charts. I see this as a huge step forward for the band. The lyrics are somewhat more concrete, and many of them have political overtones, something the band would explore further as they went. And Stipe seems to be coming out of his shell a little more. He's not mumbling the vocals as much. He's starting to step up and out as the front man. Musically, R.E.M. takes a few detours into hard rock and Latin-influenced sounds, yet they still hang on to their patented jangle rock on many tracks and still shy away from the flashy solos and over-the-top personas that characterized much of 80s rock. This music still sounds very much like R.E.M., despite its increased accessibility, and this album begins a string of records that would result in the band being thrust into the mainstream and eventually becoming one of the biggest bands in the world. I give Life's Rich Pageant a four and a half, and for me, this is right up there among my very favorite R.E.M. albums. The seeds of future success are planted here. Now we'd like to thank Howard Mitnick from the Gateway Music Podcast for coming on the show and entering Life's Rich Pageant with us. Hope you had a good time, man. I had a great time. Thanks so much for having me. I am really, it's really a pleasure and an honor to be a part of your show. If people want to hear me talk more about REM, I actually have an episode where I had, my guest was uh, Anton Mack and we talked about Murmur, which is probably my favorite REM uh, album. Um, And uh, so people are welcome to seek that out if you'd like. If not, again, thank you so much for having me. And uh, it was a blast. And I can say that I am a fan of your podcast, Howard. I, I enjoy listening to you. And you cover a broad swath of music like we do here. I mean, I heard an episode of Motley Crue and R.E.M. And you take on all comers. You'll, you'll do whatever, you know, you'll listen. Well, you'll... Yeah, well, the show's not about um, whether music is good or bad. Uh, inevitably, there's a little bit of that. It's really about how people fell in love with music. So we like. I like to talk a lot about how do people access it? What kind of technology did they use? Because I think that really affects what kind of music people like and how they like it. Um, I've done episodes talking about people falling in love with music by playing Just Dance, the video game. Uh, uh, another one where someone talks about learning how to play drums by playing Beatles rock band. You know, so right. for me, it's more about the, the feeling Although we often do, we, there are some episodes where we go deep on a specific album. Sometimes it's more about how someone got exposed to something. So, yeah, so we talk about all sorts of music. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast at places like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Podcasts. Tune in, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review of it. If you take the time to do that, I'll read your review right here on the show. If you'd like to contact me directly, I can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com and also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast. You can also recommend the show on Facebook if you prefer to do it that way. And yes, I'll read your Facebook recommendation on the podcast. You want to come on the podcast and talk about an album with me like Howard? Shoot me an email and we'll set it up. I'm always looking for co-pilots to host the show with me, and I would also welcome any requests or suggestions for albums to cover. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. I'd love to hear from you. And lastly, here at R4, we thank you so much for giving this podcast a listen, and a massive thank you if you like and support the show. Take care, and I'll catch you later.
Did you hear that car go by? Yeah. Ah, man, it's so annoying. <laughs> I can never get it all out. <laughs> I can never cut oh, all this stuff out. Oh, well. What are we going to do? Yeah. Yeah. This is a short, this is short, under a minute and a half. Jeepers. This is short, under a minute and a half. I can't. Hello. <laughs> okay. I can do it. I can do it. <laughs> You are, you, I, I tell you what, you, you buried me on this episode. I mean, I'm not, well, we, you were similar. I don't think I'm like that, I'm like that little puppy dog falling around. Hey, hey, Howard, he's my pal. He's my pal. <laughs> I like everything that he says. I'm going to say what he says. He's my well, pal. Well, you said, you said in an organized way. I said it all over the place. So I, appreciate it. No, but I think, I think we had similar feelings about it. And, yeah, uh, I think so too. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, it resonated pretty similarly with, with both of us. So, yeah. yeah. 